This is episode 213 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Bell Gunness, Getting Away with Murder. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I am so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show. Jane Simon Amason is with us, and I'll introduce her. She's a travel and food writer and author of 16 books. Among Jane's most recent books, Lincoln Road Trip, The Backroads Guide to America's Favorite President, is a bronze winner in the travel book category for the 2019-2020 Lowell Thomas Travel Journalism Competition. Woohoo! Lincoln Road Trip was also a finalist for a 2019 Forward Indie Award for travel. Big kudos for that. That's nice. She also writes about food, including the recently released classic restaurants of Northwest Indiana and historic true crime, which is what we're going to talk about today. Having grown up reading mysteries, starting with the entire Nancy Drew series, both the original where they wrote in Roadsters to the updated, more modern series and watching detective shows on TV, she combines her interest in crime with history and writing such books as Murders That Made Headlines, Crimes of Indiana, a jazz age murder in Northwest Indiana about the murder of a wealthy widow that took place in her hometown in 1923. And the book we're going to talk about today, America's Femme Fatale, the story of serial killer Belle Gunness. So welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. And it's nice a fellow Hoosier. Exactly, right. When I realized that your book was put out by Indiana University Press, and then about Indiana, it was like, oh, I can't resist. And plus, <laughs> what a story. My gosh. I told Jane that I read most of the book with my mouth wide open. And that's not much of an exaggeration. It's really an amazing and shocking story. So hold on to your seats. We're in for a <laughs> wild ride today. And keep the lights on, too, because yeah. it's spooky. Yeah, it's a little creepy. Exactly. All right. I'm going to start with some background and some spoilers about the story. Uh, but there's so much in this book and in this story that don't let that deter you from picking up a copy. It's really it's a really interesting story about a special time in American history and kind of about the Midwest and Chicago and Indiana and lots of things. So Belle Gunness was born Brynhild Storset. I hope I'm not destroying that name, Brynhild Storset. Does that sound right, Jane? It sounds right to me, though I don't speak Norwegian. So right. um... <laughs> we're both guessing. In 1859 in Norway. Uh, their youngest of eight children to a poor farming family. And then she emigrated to the U.S. 
at age 22 and changed her name to Bell instead of Brynhild. She married Mad Sorensen in Chicago. And then the story starts to get strange. She collected insurance for two fires, oh, one that just that damaged, I would say, the couple's candy store, and then one insurance policy that covered really the total destruction of their house. She also collected insurance for the deaths of two children who, who were living in their household. And her husband, who died mysteriously on a date when there were actually two insurance policies that were both in effect on that day, it seems mysterious and suspicious. She then married Peter Gunnis, whose infant daughter died the next week. And then he died eight months later and she collected insurance money for that also. So just an, um, either an incredibly unlucky woman or yeah, very highly suspicious. <laughs> she took the insurance money and bought a pig farm in Laporte, Indiana. And as I say, if you're in shock, uh, hang on, because she was just getting started. So the book is really really great, very well written, extremely well researched. And one of the surprising early stories is about Belle before she left Norway. She emigrated to the U.S., but not until after she'd already been impregnated and then jilted by a well-to-do young man who mysteriously died while she was still in Norway. So Jane- You know it happens, what can I say, right? Yeah, I'm sorry to ask you to speculate, but do you think that she poisoned that young man? Well, first of all, the story is a, a prevalent rumor that started at the time when it happened, and it's still a rumor. I talked to a distant relative of Bell's who spoke very good English, which is good because um, I couldn't have communicated with him without that. Um, so I know it goes back a long way, but nobody has exact proof. But the, the story is that she did poison him, that he beat her. She was hoping to marry him. It would have made such a big difference in her life, you know, and um, he beat her. She lost the baby and then um, she poisoned him. So that's the story. Mm -hmm. And people use that as a basis for why she was so hostile and probably why she was never able to have a child of her own either because of the beating. Yeah, that would instill a lot of hatred. That's for sure. And it seemed to me that with these first fires, or maybe even with poisoning this man that she really did you know, have a personal vendetta against, it seemed as though she was kind of taking baby steps at first, you know, mm -hmm. killing these babies, fairly easy to kill, not to be too um, clinical here, and then collecting insurance money. So, you know, you've studied this kind of crime before. Is it common for serial killers to start small like that? Well, you know, I think even when you look at dictators who turned into horrific murderers like Stalin and um, Hitler, and you see that at first they're not going in wholesale kind of murder, but it does accrue. And whether that is typical of all serial killers, I don't know. But you almost think there's some, becomes something addictive. And Bill had the kind of personality 
from all that I've read about her, that she would almost play with people. I mean, she would murder somebody and then she'd wear their coat, even though she'd say, oh, they left for Norway to see the king, you know, be crowned. Or um, she would wear their watches or one of their watches, very distinctive watches to um, her handyman who helped to dispose of bodies. And people knew, you know, it was a small rural community, people knew. They knew these workers that had come to her house and then mysteriously disappeared. And they think, oh, that's so-and-so's watch. And people knew that she had all their trunks in a room, you know, like they left all their clothes. But, you know, she always had a story, but then it was kind of in your face too. You know, you're wearing the guy you murdered's coat or, you know, the, the expensive watch. Um, and, then, and she would just play people like that. So I, I think she felt a sense of superiority, too, that she could do whatever she wanted. You know, we might call that megalomania, certainly sociopathic. So one of the reasons I like the book is actually you have a sense of humor, obviously. And, you know, Belle sort of had a sense of humor, sort of a black, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of irony or sarcasm, like you say, this kind of in your face. But one of the reasons I enjoyed the book was because of your commenting about the things that she did and, you know, how in in someone's face they were. There's one I remember where she tells really just a bald-faced lie in front of someone. And she knew that that person knew that she was lying, mm-hmm. right? But she still had the yeah, whatever you want to call it, the schutzpah to to do that. Yeah, but but I th- I really enjoyed the book because of your commenting about that, right? And you're kind of pointing those things out, which just adds a lot to the story. Thank you. Yeah, yeah she did. Um, when somebody came to see her about the death of her second husband, um, who had died on the farm. She instead said, "Oh, he died in a store when a sausage maker fell on him, a sausage grinder," and you know, the woman knew it wasn't true, but she was too polite, you know, to kind of say, oh, you're lying. So she just knew. I mean, she she wrote once to one of her lovers who she's trying to persuade to come out to the farm. Once you get here, you'll never want to leave. Yeah. <laughs> that was so creepy. <laughs> it's so creepy. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I I was I'm continued surprised that she got away with what she got away with, even before leaving Chicago, right? Like there yes. was no investigation into the deaths of those babies, and that the insurance companies just paid up, you know, time after time. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I think there were a lot of diverse little insurance companies and she probably went to different ones to insure. Mm. And of course, you know, you didn't have that cross spectrum that we have now with people, everything being online and so much easier to trace. She did have another way of getting babies and they would disappear. Um, And at that time, the orphanages were just overcrowded. Mm. Women would drop off their babies. They couldn't take care of them. And they would pay people like Bill. Well, hopefully they weren't like Bell, but people who wanted babies <laughs> mm-hmm. to take the babies. And there were times, you know, neighbors told of a little girl named Lucy who was just adorable. And she lived with Bell for about a year. And then she just disappeared. And when they asked her, where, where did Lucy go? She gave them different stories, you know. Um, and so she got money for these children, too. Plus, I think she was doing um, abortions for women too, birth control. I don't know if it existed much at all, but 
it certainly was illegal. They called it restoring your menses back then, which is an interesting way to put it. But there was a real call for that, especially with, you know, kind of gangster mobs, kind of people, showgirls and stuff like that, because it's hard to be a showgirl when you're eight months pregnant. Mm -hmm. So she had all these, she was like a a business that had diversified. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So again, I'm asking you to speculate, but I mean, do you think the fact that they that they were immigrants and often the, you know, the babies were Norwegian babies or that there the fact there was a language barrier or maybe that officials couldn't believe that a woman would be doing these heinous crimes? I mean, do you think these were factors in why she didn't get caught? I think all of those are good points. Um, you know, the Norwegian world, it was an area and people spoke Norwegian. They still followed the customs of their own country. So it was probably pretty insular. Babies died a lot back then. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so in forensic science was pretty limited. I know when Mads, her first husband died, his brothers were convinced she, she had murdered him, mm-hmm. but they would have to pay for the autopsy mm-hmm. and they couldn't afford the money. So they just couldn't do it. But they went to their graves believing she had murdered the brother, uh-huh. her yeah. husband. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was even testimony from neighbors who saw her, you know, who overheard things like, I think Mad said something like, Belle, you've killed me, you know, before he died and also you know she'd given him some medicine she got at the pharmacy and she the death looked like it had been strychnine a pretty powerful poison when they asked to see the paper it's his medicines came wrapped up in papers back then she said oh i already burned it the guy was only dead half an hour but you know she'd already disappeared the papers she was very astute and and then she'd go into hysterics oh my husband oh right yeah, you can't cut them open. No, no. You know, so she was, she knew how to manipulate. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking manipulation. Yeah. Just a very powerful tool. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, the poor immigrant woman and, you know, the little babies and, you know, they felt sorry for her, but so many doctors believe that some of the kids that died under her care were murdered, but they're really, they had a couple inquests, um, but they never really followed through with anything. Yeah, it's really amazing. Okay, so there she is in Chicago. Now she has all this money. She's bought the pig farm in Indiana. So can you give us a rundown about what happens next? Well, she buys a house that once belonged to a very famous madame um, around a brothel there. Um, a lot of Chicago visitors would come to their very fancy house, cost a lot of money. She fixed it and then she fixed it up some more. You know, and when the madame owned it, it even had bars on some of the windows, like they some, you know, white slavery, I think they used to call it. Um, oh. You know, the kidnapping of women and then holding them and forcing them to have sex with people. Um, she ran this farm. She was very strong. It was 44 acres. It wasn't just pigs. It was also um, potatoes and orchards. And I guess it was the land is very beautiful. Laporte is a very, very pretty, charming town in northwest Indiana. 
I don't know if you've been there or not, but very historical and in great shape and all that has a few legs. But she was very strong. They said she could pick up two pigs and hold one under each arm. And pigs are not small. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she just started off the farming, but she'd have these handymen come and they'd help her. And a lot of times they were her lovers. And then they would disappear. And that's when she'd get the coats and the watches. But she also advertised um, in Norwegian newspapers for a spouse you know, citing how, what a great cook she was and how she was so dependent and needed a man to take over this large, beautiful farm. So she not only, um, in the, and then there was sexual innuendos. So, I mean, she was like offering the whole package, you know, marry me, you're going to have, you know, this wonderful Norwegian food because um, she was targeting, targeting Norwegian men. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, we're going to have fun in the bedroom. And then also, you know, I will listen to everything you say and do what you want me to do. I mean, it seemed like a good package. She'd convince them to sell the farms, sow the money into their coats, don't tell anybody where she was going. And I think these farmers, you know, they were very lonely. They were homesick. They were living on vast acres of land in like North Dakota, not a lot of contact with other people. And I think it just was a very seductive. But if somebody came and they didn't have enough money, she was pretty much, nope, not going to do this. One of those people that she said, no, this isn't going to work. You don't have enough money. Actually woke up in the middle of the night. He was to leave the next day. And she was standing over him. And she he thought he had a hatchet in her hands. She ran out of the room. And then he just ran out of the house and went to the train station and sat all night, you know, waiting for the train. But he, he thought he had escaped being murdered. He probably had. Yeah, he probably had. And she had a very distinct way of, she mostly, um, she killed people various ways, poison, knives, uh, bludgeoning them to death. But she dissected their bodies. I mean, she cut off limbs and then she separated everything and put, you know, put parts in. And this is another part of her genius, evil genius. She put body parts in gunny sacks, she bought tons of quicklime, which just eats away flesh right away. And so when they start finding the bodies on the farm, you know, they find a bag full of legs or a bag full of arms or, or whatever. And so it made, and the quicklime too, it acted so quickly, it made trying to figure out even how many bodies there were difficult. So, and again, that was a very smart move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it helped. Yeah, she clearly uh, was thinking through all these things. It, it's funny, we talk about why people murder. And really for Belle, it seems like it was really all about the money. It seems yes. like. You know, one of the newspapers had a list of probably all the, I don't know if it was all, but at least all the insurance money she had gotten from people and then how much um, they'd also given her in cash. You know, that had to be recreated from relatives and stuff. But um, it was a tremendous amount of money. It was in the millions. And, you know, back then, millions are worth even more. You know, a million is a nice amount now. I wouldn't mind having it. But back then, that was huge. Mm-hmm. So, and then she had the jewels. She had the watches. I mean, she just, you know, she had their clothes, their trunks. I mean, she just got all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised, too how businesslike her letters were 
once mm-hmm. there was a correspondence that had started up between the potential spouses, husbands, and her, just where she was very, as you just said, you know, very forthright about, yeah, sell all your stuff and bring money. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't these guys have a clue? Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Put it in your coat. Yeah. And if they didn't come with money, but they had it, you know, she wooed them, she fed them. And again, the Norwegian food was such a draw too. These guys were so homesick and they were so lonely. You know, she would go to the bank with them and stand with them while they cashed out, you know, their money or got their money from their bank in wherever, South Dakota. You know, you think somebody would have been like, well, I don't know if I really want to give her all my money, but she must have been very seductive. She, In her later photos, she's not a a pretty woman necessarily, but when she was younger, she was looked very pretty. But she must have had a lot of charisma. And a lot of, yeah, what's the word? I hate to use the word courage, but yeah, just bravery. I mean, yeah, it doesn't have to mean noble, you know, like we think of bravery. And I think she just was. She was an interesting woman. And another thing I think she did, which is another money. And again, think of a big corporation and all their spinoff mm-hmm. businesses. If you murder somebody in Chicago, what do you do with the body? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like there's a lot of spare room that you, you know, you can't keep it in your basement. She was receiving lots of trunks and she was very cautious when the trunks would be delivered. She didn't want people to handle them too much and everything. And they really believed newspaper accounts at the time say that she was probably receiving bodies from the mob. Yeah. Yeah. Which would make sense. She had this big farm. She knew how to cut people up. And so was probably that was another money stream for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talk a lot about that in the book, not a lot, but some in the book that she probably had these mob connections. And yeah, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but yeah, it makes you wonder if if some of that was how she escaped capture and then eventually made her own escape. Right. And she probably had a comp. Well, we know she had a couple, pretty sure she had a couple accomplices, but There were two other big serial killers in Chicago about the same time she was operating. One was H.H. Holmes, um, the book by Eric Larson about the White City. It was about the the World's Fair in 1893. He had a whole house that he had built that was designed with rooms where he could murder people and stuff. He was caught and hung. There was another man named Johann Hauck who was German, and he was traveling in Northwest Indiana and Chicago and other places too. But he would marry vulnerable women and usually murder them for their money or at least run out on them. And some of her, when it was discovered that she had all these bodies on her farm, some of the missing women's relatives that had been married to Hulk, um, they came to Bell's farm, sure that the bodies were there. So she could have been working in conjunction with him. They had the same kind of racket, only she keeps running up with German, you know, to seduce and kill German women, get their money. And she was doing North Norwegian men. So, but they had the same business plan, I guess you'd call it. I think so. Yeah. Business model. Yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly what you'd, what you'd call it. He ended up being hung. So from what we know of these three serial killers that we know that were operating in Chicago about the same time, 
she was the only one who survived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're pretty sure she survived. At least that's my hypothesis. So one more comment I have to make about her yeah, bravery or guts or just yeah, bullheadedness. <laughs> the relative whose brother, I think it was, mm-hmm. had fallen prey to her and been victimized, wrote to her and inquired after his brother. And I was just doubly shocked to see the letter that she wrote back in which she says, sure, come on down and we'll talk about what's happened to your brother, but be sure and bring some money. Yes, I know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yes, and that's an interesting story. And she did that to somebody else too, her second husband. She invited his brother. Well, no, his brother came out because he was sure his brother had been murdered. And his brother had left a daughter, Swan Hill, um, which I think is a, a, a popular um, Norwegian name. But anyway, and she was about eight, and the family was sure that she would end up being murdered too. You know, Peter had been murdered, the little baby had been murdered. So he came out and he, he wanted to take the, the little girl back. And she said, No, you can't. Um, and he ended up just sneaking out of the house with the little girl and taking her. And then they hid her because there were people around that they thought that Bell had sent to retrieve her. And I don't know what laws were like back then, why she got to keep the child, but but she didn't. And so the woman lived, but they said that her son reported that she'd always been afraid all of her life yeah. because of what had happened. Gus was the name of the brother that came. And she even said to him, oh, why don't you come live on my farm with me? (laughs) And he's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'd be crazy to do that. Right. Yeah, it was one bright spot that that little girl did get away. Yes, it really was. And then she had children and, you know, she lived a good life. You know, she lived a long, healthy life. So, yeah. Even though, yeah, I'm sure she was terrified that yes. Belle would, yeah. would find her again. Which to me brings up an interesting question. How much did the kids know yeah. of what was going on? Because one, one of the survivors who got away, so the man who didn't have enough money, he said <laughs> that at dinner, the little, one of the little girls just looked at him with, you know, like, sadness in her eyes like she knew that something bad was going to happen to her yeah I mean and some of those kids at the end of the story were old enough you know kids are pretty observant so yeah yeah, I suspect that they knew what was going on but you know Belle I mean just her bullheadedness her her intimidation of people her hysterics if she got in a tight spot I mean it's just amazing how well that worked and how effective that was. Like I say, I was just, some of the things, there were people that she killed, not just for money, but, you know, killed that peddler who came to her house yeah. and goes to her house and bam, he just vanishes right. and she starts using his buggy, which is yeah, his horse by and the neighbors. Buggy. <laughs> it was like, and then yeah, killed a farmhand. And it seems like she even killed some poor neighbor boy who, she did. who bothered he was- her. He was somewhat, I think, um, maybe emotionally or educationally, somewhat limited, and he bothered her. And so then he just disappeared, and his mother was sure that Bill had 
who killed him. But you know, it's probably pretty likely that the sheriff, I don't I don't know if he knew exactly what was going on, but I think he received payments to keep too many questions being asked or responding to the questions. He drove a very expensive car. Um, it was a roadster, and I can't remember the price of it, but you know, it was kind of astronomically expensive for that time period. The only other person who had a car like that in town was a very successful lawyer. So I think that helped put a buffer up. And, you know, people couldn't track people. You didn't have cell phones. You didn't have social security numbers. You didn't even really have much in the way of phones. And so people would say, oh, well, where's my uncle? He or my father. He came out to live with you. And, oh, he went out west. Or he said he was going to call you, but I'm, I don't know why he or get in touch with you. So it was so hard to track people. You know, somebody tells you your uncle has gone to or your father has gone to Wyoming. How do you find them? I mean, it's not like you can do a Google search on them. Just mm-hmm. Astley, A-S-L-E, it was his brother, Andrew, that came out. And Bill had tried for years to get him to come out, but he did. And he seemed to really, you know, like like it. And so he sent for all his money. And once he got it, he, he disappeared. And the brother just wouldn't take no. Yeah. He just, and that's when things started to fall apart for her. The brother said, I'm coming to town. I'll be on the train. And so um, that's when that kind of put in motion all that that happened. It has been a mystery for years, whether she died in that fire or whether she got away. And if she got away, where did she go? Yeah, that's really the the pivotal moment when, yeah. when he says, I'm coming. And again, you know, the characters in the book are just so interesting, the way you depict them, the, the sheriff, the potentially compromised sheriff, which... You know, on one hand, I think, wow, that's really shocking that he let this local woman get away with murder. On the other hand, I mean, those were the days when the police, at least in Chicago, were extremely corrupted. So mm-hmm. why would I think Laporte would be any different, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not like we have some yeah, stronghold on morality in Indiana. <laughs> we so. Hoosiers, you mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and that is very true. Um, and also, you know, if you're making a pittance, you know, I don't know what they made. And then all of a sudden somebody's dangling tons and tons of money in front of you. I mean, I'm not saying it's right, but you can see how that path is clear, you know, yeah. for you, mm-hmm. if you have any tendencies. And the sheriff later on did get into some other trouble. They found out when he was in office, he had been um, taking fines and things like that and not putting them into the kitty, but keeping them for himself. And he had some other issues. So, uh, just a fascinating story. Your whole description of the trial for the person who was uh, who was accused of murdering Bell. Oh yeah, and he yeah, was so it's just in such interesting her. people. Yeah, interesting. And you know, there's a woman there too that was involved at some level, and we'll never know. I don't think exactly what level she had been considered the most beautiful woman in. Northwest Indiana, when she was younger, um, she was black. In Indiana, you couldn't even marry somebody of a different race, including somebody who was Hawaiian and whatever, until I think it was the 1970s. I mean, so back then it was real scandalous. He was a very successful lawyer who was married. He was going to get this huge judgeship and it got taken away from him because of this relationship he had with her name was Elizabeth Smith, was so. Um, 
well known. In fact, one time she got mad at him and supposedly she either bull whipped him in town or hung him upside down out the window of the second story building. Um, but she was very smart with her money. When she died, she had quite a bit of money. She knew stuff and she promised to tell the lawyer who, who represented the handyman who was accused of killing Bill. She would tell him before she died, but on her deathbed, when she sent for him, he was somewhere like in Louisiana fishing and he couldn't get back in time. So that would have been a very interesting story. But she paid for the handyman's legal bell. He and Bell broke, and um, he was always threatening to tell people something or other and wanted more money from Bell. And um, she paid all his legal fees. Mm -hmm. So yeah. she was a good friend. So I thought that was an interesting aspect of, you know, what it would be like to be, you know, African-American in Indiana at that time and how many opportunities that women could have had if there wasn't such prejudice back then. Yeah, it's a fascinating subplot, uh, yeah. the Liz Smith uh, story also. So you've written about true crime before. Yes. And, and so t uh, tell me how Bell's crimes stack up against others Ooh. that you've <laughs> We don't even know how many people she murdered. Um, I think they estimate that there was enough body parts on her farm to indicate that at least 40 people were murdered or bodies were buried on the farm. But we don't know how many people she killed in, in Chicago and, you know, including those all those babies that she would take from the orphanages and then they disappear. And plus she had kind of adopted, it was always kind of hazy, but these two children who lived with her, they were both infants and they died and they're buried in the family plot. Plus she taken a young baby from a woman who was dying and the husband at the time, just he had all these other kids and he couldn't take care of her, but you know, she promised to return the baby or the child. And um, she murdered her when she turned 16. So, I mean, she lived with this child for, you know, 16 years. Isn't that amazing? Very sweet, very lovely little girl. Then she killed her, the three children that were living with her at the time when the fire broke out. If you believe that she set the fire to hide, you know, the fact that she was, you know, disappearing. And then the woman without the head that was found in the fire, who did not meet Bell's description. Um, so that's another case. So, I mean, they're just, we, we don't know. How many. And, you know, sometimes um, they had to help her handyman who helped her. Most of the handymen were really innocent, didn't know much, but this Ray Lamphere was were helping her bury. She said that she she was a midwife and these were her mistakes, you know, probably women who died from abortions. So we just have no idea mm -hmm. how many people, but 40 probably is the baseline, mm -hmm. which is a big baseline. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And there are funny stories because Lamphere, when he was testifying, he would say that at times, she had a system when men would be arriving and they'd be out trying to bury the next man. And sometimes somebody would get there early and they're still trying to bury the last victim. And, you know, so it's just like crazy. Yeah. Super so, black humor. I think you said this, if you thought if this was fiction, you wouldn't believe it. You just yeah. think it was too much. They've jumped a shark. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, I would say, yes, she, when it came to the numbers um, and the audacity, she was she was out, out there. You know, I have another book out about a woman who 
very beautiful, very bright, um, more genteel than Bill. Raised in a New Orleans family, married a married a man who was fifty five when she was sixteen. Murdered him. Mm. The jury was pretty sure she was guilty, but they didn't want to see somebody so pretty hang. Mm. You know, and then she went on to murder a couple other men and get their money. But I, I don't think she murdered more than three people. You know, <laughs> right? Murders that made headlines. And those are crimes of Indiana. And those were usually just one murder um, per person. And it's interesting, a lot of, not a lot, but there's a a large percentage of those murders were because men did not want to marry their girlfriends who they'd gotten pregnant, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a big cause for murdering back then. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Whereas I think this idea that you have about considering Belle as basically running a business is really on point because she didn't, in some of these cases, it seems like she murdered people because they irritated her yes. or were in the way somehow, but yes. mostly it was just for money. So it, it really was, for money. was, yeah, just this, just this business. And she mm-hmm. ran it as you would run any kind of business, like you say, diversification, getting different revenue streams, you know, it's just yeah, paying off the the uh, officials. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty eye opening. Yeah, it really is. Just part of the times in that it was easier not I think not to get caught because you just didn't have the type of forensics and things that we have now. I was going to ask you that if you thought. And again, this is just wild speculation, but I, I was wondering if you thought that anyone could get away with that kind of crime today if they targeted, you know, the really powerless and the really disenfranchised. Yeah. And I think you see that with some of the mass murderers you hear about now, the women were prostitutes or, you know, and that doesn't mean they deserve to die at all. It's just that they had less of a social network that would say, hey, where did, you know, so-and-so go and I'm going to call the police and I want them to look. Um, it, you know, it may be harder, but then again, I mean, if you can isolate somebody, they can just disappear and be buried in some cornfield somewhere or something, which reminds me of another anecdote. You know, she did raise these pigs. And sometimes the handyman, Ray Lamphere, testified that she'd be so tired after a farm day and killing somebody that she wouldn't go through all the rigmarole and putting people in the sacks. with the, She would just feed body parts to the pigs. And I guess big pigs being pigs will eat just about anything, including each other. And um, then the comments were that her her sausages were famous because people thought they were so delicious. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. Right. More black humor. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in the TV series, Deadwood, they do that. They feed the bodies to the pigs. And again, you know, it's like, well, that's fiction, but (laughs) (laughs) truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, if you have a body, you've got to think of a way to get rid of it. It's not something you just hide in a closet. It'll smell and all sorts of things. Yeah. Pigs are a solution. Yeah. And some of it's, it, it reminded me a couple of times, you know, kind of the black humor of Hitchcock. Yes, right, that's right. Very graphically in his movies, 
you know, show how hard it is to kill somebody yes. and then how difficult it is to get rid of the body. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, these, these very matter of fact, practical <laughs> issues with murder. And Hitchcock had that dry sense of humor, the dignity. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing, I mean, there were heroes in this book too. And one of them was the brother that came, came to town. Um, he was the one who discovered the first body. And he searched and searched and searched. And by then the fire had happened and, and everybody, some people said Bill was dead. And he just couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't figure out, he had people helping him, couldn't figure out where the, where his brother might be buried, but he was sure his brother was buried on that property. And so he had said goodbye to some of the workers who were still excavating the basement and started going up the hill towards the train station. And then he felt so uncomfortable. So he turned around and he asked, came back and asked them one more question. And it turns out they had dug a hole for trash and they went there and, you know, a couple of shovels and there was his brother's head. So, but he was a hero. I mean, he just was not going to give up. Yeah. And really, you know, he broke the whole thing open, his tenacity yes. and and his asking the right questions at the right time. Yeah. yeah. If it hadn't been for him, who knows how long that. Who knows? Get. Yeah, exactly. They may never have found bodies, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, they wouldn't have known what had happened or anything. So, but I mean, and there were other heroes too, but there were a lot of bad guys in this. <laughs> in this little thing too. So to, again, I keep asking you to speculate because there are parts of the story that that we'll just never know, or or maybe we we will eventually know. So there's that final fire at the farm that you know brought the whole thing down. Everybody mm-hmm. coming and digging and finding what they were going to find. So sh- it looks as though one possibility is she set that whole scenario up to look as though she had committed suicide or that she was killed in that fire. Killed in a fire. Yes. Yeah. The suicide thing seems very uncharacteristic for this uh, particular personality, right? No, (laughs) she was always going to have a plan. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. So what are the possibilities of what, of what might've happened? My summation is there are a couple of witnesses who saw the sheriff's car driving late that night. And even though he came to the fire when it broke out, this was before. And my summation is that he helped her get away to like a train station or to somebody else who picked her up and got paid for it because he had a lot of money after that. I think she got away. Ray Lamphere, who was went to prison for a couple of years, said he had received letters from her. And there were people who saw her after the fire, maybe about six or seven people all on one day, not all of them together. So it wasn't like they mm. just kind of, and they reported it to the sheriff. And a couple of them said the sheriff just said, but are you crazy? You didn't think you're seeing ghosts and stuff. And the sheriff really poo-pooed them. And maybe she didn't get all the money she wanted. Supposedly, there was still money buried on the property um, that they searched for. And, of course, everybody was looking for that missing head, too. So my guess is she got away. She was very masculine, very big from all that farm work and stuff. And maybe she disguised herself as a man and just went to live in Chicago. And, you know, maybe she continued her business model. But I think she did get away. Well, I guess. 
I think there's a good chance she got away, but I also think there's a chance that somebody murdered her for her money that was helping her get away. Not the sheriff. I don't think the sheriff did, um, but at all, but um, oh. maybe somebody else. So I think those are the two most likely scenarios oh. because one of the marital agencies she'd been involved with, because she also uses marital agencies to, to hook up with men, had ended up killing somebody else too. So he had a lot of violence in him. Uh-huh. But I don't think she died in the fire. The body didn't match. The head was missing. Um, and heads are the last to burn compared to the salt flesh and everything. And the body still had flesh on them. Um, so I think she got that far away. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much farther she got. Do you think there will be ever anything discovered that will bring us more information? Like, do you think the mystery of her of her death or what happened to her will ever be solved? I do. There's so much more technology now. About, I want to say, maybe 10 years ago, um, there's an attorney from Laporte who is also a forensic scientist. She lives in Indianapolis now. And she actually was able to have the, the body that's buried, that's said to be Belle, the woman without the head, oh. and did some DNA sampling, but there wasn't enough DNA to try to make a match. That's all changed now. There's mm. that DNA probably is much more matchable than it mm. was. So if somehow she can have get some kind of permission or funding or whatever to dig up the body again, or just to do all the DNA matching, that might tell us if the body in the grave mm-hmm. um, that says that it's Bell is really Bell. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think, to the sheriff just shut down digging for bodies. I mean, he just said, we're going to stop. We're not going to dig for anymore. And even the newspaper columnists and editors said, why, why are you doing this? Why are you stopping? But he had a lot of power, and so they stopped. So there's a belief that there's still more bodies on the farm. Yeah. And so they now have this technology where you can go over land and look for soft spots that have organic which would be bodies and so but you'd have to get permission from the people on the farm and probably the last thing they want to do is have a bunch of people traipsing in the newspapers and all the people want to come and see it so I don't know but that's another way is that there are probably more bodies on the farm and maybe that would show us something too Mm -hmm. but the big thing is the DNA gotcha yeah fascinating yeah well, you and I both have strong connections to Indiana, and I used to have yeah. this yeah, little sticker on my desk that said, Indiana, we raise weirdos. <laughs> it, it just seemed like there were so many strange people who came from Indiana. Yeah, or passed through, like Richard Speck, Ellinger. And it seemed very appropriate that the science fiction TV show Stranger Things is set in Indiana. It was like, oh, of course, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> well, we're an interesting state because, you know, in the 1920s, our governor was a member of the KKK uh-huh. in Valparaiso University, which is a highly regarded university, was almost was bankrupt in the KKK. KKK tried to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when the Lutherans stepped in and bought it instead to prevent that from happening. So, I mean, we have <laughs> we have some interesting things, yes. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. If you think 
that Indiana is kind of surprising and how much weirdness it puts out, whether it's in crime or other, other activities. Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I've never analyzed it, but I do know, (laughs) you know, there's even a book out called Weird Indiana. Oh, really? Oh, yes. (laughs) And I think it has a second volume now. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's by Mark Merriman, who lives up in Maryville, Indiana. But anyway, yeah, we have interesting things. And, you know, the world of Indiana that you're from, Bloomington, is a lot different from where I'm from, Northwest Indiana. But you know, we all have our characters. Yeah, right. It's a different stories. kind of weirdness. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Refer them to the book or your website or anything you'd like them to oh, know? I would love to. I actually do two websites. Um, one is janeamason.com, just my name and then .com. It's a travel and food um, site. And, um, you know, if I interview a cookbook author, a famous chef like Nina Garten, or if I travel and try new recipes, that's where I post those stories. I also do um, a book, book blog called Shelf Life dot blog. And I, you know, I do author inter- interviews. I, I write um, b- about books for the Northwest Indiana Times, which is the third largest newspaper in um, the Chicago land area and the second largest in the state. And I, I post a lot of those on that site too. So if people are interested in books and author interviews, they can go to that one as well. Hmm. And, um, you know, I love to hear from readers. People read one of my books. I'd love to have them just go online and, you know, there's a way to contact me through the website and and just let me know what they think. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed the book. So again, I just want to say the title, America's Femme Fatale, the story of serial killer Belle Gunness, G-U-N-N-E-S-S. And so Jane Simon Amason has been with us today and her last name is spelled A-M-M-E-S-O-N. And as always, I'll put that information in the show notes too. But Jane, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Well, Jennifer, thank you for having me on the show. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.